Amen. Amen. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 tonight. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. We are going to look tonight at Jesus cleansing the temple. And what significance does that have for us tonight? Last week we saw the first miracle that Jesus ever did. The changing or converting of water into wine. And tonight we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple. And I want you to bridge those two with this thought. Always after conversion comes cleansing. Always after conversion comes cleansing. And cleansing even for the Christian is a lifetime process. God is always wanting to clean out of our lives things that don't need to be there. In fact, even tonight, one of the things that maybe the Holy Spirit will be speaking to you about is something He wants to clean out of your life, you see, after you've been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read tonight, after the wedding in Cana, that he went down to Capernaum. I want to stop there for a minute. Capernaum became Jesus' headquarters, if you will, during his three-year earthly ministry. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And he even said later on that if the miracles and works that he did in Capernaum would have done it, been done in Sodom, that Sodom would have still been standing to this day. And he says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it is for Capernaum. Because Capernaum was the center, if you will, his headquarters of his earthly ministry. Notice that as he went down to Capernaum from Cana, that his mother, Mary, and his brothers and his disciples were accompanying him. So you have those who are attached to Jesus because they are family. You also have those who are attached to Jesus by faith. And faith is actually a stronger bond than family is. Because we know that the Bible teaches us that up to this point... uh, None of his family, other than maybe his mother Mary, obviously, believed in him. They came to believe in him later on. And this is a very much a side note. I was sharing with my wife on the way home last week, and I didn't share this last week, but I believe that because of Mary's, Mary's knowledge, intimate knowledge of what was going on at the wedding in Cana, that it's very possible that one of Jesus' brothers or sisters was the ones that was getting married that day. In fact, you'll note his sisters aren't even mentioned here as accompanying him, which makes me think that maybe one of the sisters was actually one of the ones that got married up in Cana, and only his brothers and his mother were accompanying him to Jerusalem, because otherwise his sisters would have been there too because it was really important for Jews to be in Jerusalem during the festival to commemorate Pentecost. 
And the Bible says they stayed in Capernaum a few days, probably to rest a little while and get their bearings before they headed down to Jerusalem. So in verse 13, John says, the Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. First of all, Jerusalem was higher in elevation than anywhere around it. So when the Bible says people went up to Jerusalem, that was just because of the topography, if you will, in Israel. And again, every Jew who at least was seeking God in some way or believed in any way the Old Testament Scriptures would have sought to be in Jerusalem during the festival of Pentecost because God told them way back in the book of Exodus, this is something that I want you to do every year. I want you to commemorate the Passover. Whenever I told Moses to instruct the people to get a lamb without blemish and to kill it and to make sure that you apply the blood over the doorposts, so that when the death angel passes through Egypt, it will pass over your house and you will not be under judgment and get ready to leave Egypt the day after the Passover is commemorated. So in the month of Nisan, which to the Jews was the first month of the year for them, every year they would commemorate the festival of the Passover. And isn't it Again, just like God, that here is the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, going to Israel, into Jerusalem, to be there during the festival of the Passover. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem was still a rather large city. There would have been several hundred thousand people living in Jerusalem normally. But during the festival of Passover... According to Jewish historians, there was well over a million people in and around Jerusalem. I mean, you can imagine the throngs of people that are there in the city of Jerusalem during the festival of Passover. Jewish historians tell us that every day during the festival, there would be approximately 250 thousand sacrifices a day. A quarter of a million sacrifices a day at the temple during the festival of Passover. And and you can just imagine again just how crowded Jerusalem was. It's in great contrast what's going to happen here in just a moment in the scriptures to what Jesus did in Cana. In his first miracle in Cana, it was pretty obscure, pretty secluded. Only a few people in the wedding party knew the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. But when Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple, it's something that thousands of people will witness in Jerusalem. Because there's even more people in the city of Jerusalem during the festival of Passover than any other time of the year. So put yourself there. And if you were a a good Jew in Jesus' day, you would have been there. You would have been one of those thousands of people in Jerusalem, all crowded in there to commemorate the festival of the Passover and to be there at the most holy place 
for the Jew. The temple in Jerusalem. It was at that point that we read then in verse 14. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at tables. First of all, a couple technical things to to help fill in some gaps and give you maybe even a better picture of what's going on here and maybe even a deeper appreciation of what's happening here. You'll notice if you have the Net Bible that they use the words temple courts, which is a very accurate translation because the word here is a word to describe, in a sense, the entire temple precinct, which included the court of the Gentiles. The only place that the Gentiles could come and offer prayers and in some way worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it wasn't just describing the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. Here, these words are describing the entire precinct and the court of the Gentiles. And why that is important to Jesus and to God is because many of these Gentiles came seeking God and wanting to know more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you can understand, again, part of of Jesus's... uh, discussed here about what's going on because it was painting for the for the gentiles a very poor picture of who god was by the way the jewish religious leaders were acting and what they were allowing to happen even in the temple court precincts it reminds us how much god cares about our witness and our testimony especially before unbelievers and to make sure that as we are out there if you will rubbing up against the Gentiles, if you will, in the courts of the Gentiles, that we are, that we are providing, if you will, a pathway to God and not causing people to pause in coming to Christ. And I think that's part of why Jesus became so upset about what was going on here. Let's also take a moment and, and give some background as to why the money changers and why the selling of of animals. Obviously, people had to come during the festival of Passover and offer sacrifices. That was part of it, you see. And many of them traveled great distances to get to Jerusalem. Some even from foreign countries. So instead of them having the burden of taking these animals from home and taking them all the way to Jerusalem, even God in the Old Testament said, why don't you just offer them to be able to get animals once they get there for sacrifice? Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But part of what discouraged people from bringing their own animals was this that the Jewish religious leaders saw an opportunity here to make an extra buck. And what they would do is no matter what animals, no matter how good the animals were that people brought from home, they would always deem them as not up to snuff. And so you've got to buy one of our animals because it's the, it's the only one that actually measures up to the without spot, without blemish. But then they would do this. Instead of 
selling these animals for sacrifice to people who came at a fair price, they would jack up the price because the people didn't have any choice. They were in Jerusalem. If they cared at all about being a spiritual, you know, Jew and a God-fearing Jew, they would want to offer a sacrifice. And so they were sort of stuck. They had to buy these sacrifices that the religious leaders raised the prices of and they didn't have any choice. Then the religious leaders did this. Where the money changers come in is, again, this had nothing to do with God. This was all man's invention to make an extra buck. Is They came up with the idea that, you know what? A lot of these people are coming from foreign countries and whatever, and their money's pagan. We can't accept their money at the temple of God. So we need to exchange their money, that's pagan money, and we need to offer them a, a temple coin, if you will, for their offerings. Again, the problem was they jacked the price up of the exchange rate so that for every, say, in our currency, for every dollar that these poor people would come to exchange, they'd have to pay $1.50 for a dollar offering, if you will, of the temple coin. So it was all done not to help these people out who had come from great distances and to relieve the burden, if you will, and to try to be a support to them. No. The religious leaders of Israel over the years had saw in God's will to have Passover commemorated and sacrifices instituted to point to the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, a way to exploit the people, a way to take advantage of the situation, a way to monopolize the situation. And that's what you have happening here. This isn't just them selling animals. This isn't just them exchanging a foreign currency for a temple coin. This goes much deeper than that. And that's why then, in verse 15, we read that Jesus made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep and oxen. He made a whip of cords, literally ropes. And there would have been plenty of rope there because of all the animals that were present that either had ropes wrapped around their crates or ropes wrapped around them. And so there was plenty of rope there. They were not allowed to bring any kind of weapon into the temple precinct. Only the temple guards and temple security was allowed to have, in a sense, any kind of weapons, if you will. And so Jesus looks around and he's so indignant and so angry in a righteous way about what is going on that he looks around, he sees these ropes and he makes a makeshift whip with it. And he begins to literally drive all of those who are selling and all the money changers. And notice, even all the animals out of the temple precinct. Now folks, Many have read this story over the years and they don't see anything miraculous in this story. They don't see the fact that, you know, like in the previous 
lesson, we saw, well, Jesus miraculously turned water into wine. But folks, I submit to you that this is as great a miracle as any in the Bible. When you think about what happened here. Remember, nobody knew who Jesus was at this point. In fact, they didn't know who he was. He had just done his first miracle up in Cana of Galilee. And here comes this guy out of nowhere. And he starts literally just driving everyone out. And there's the temple security and there's the temple guards and there's thousands of people in the temple precinct. And nobody stops him. Nobody prevent, Nobody just goes up and says, stop, you can't do this. Now, later on, they ask him what authority he had to do it. But think about it, folks. This is a miracle of unimaginable power. It is the power of Jesus Christ and the moral authority that God has in dealing with sin because no one stopped Jesus from completely clearing out the temple precinct of thousands of money changers, thousands of oxen and sheep, thousands of people who were selling animals, and he got rid of all of it and nobody stopped him. Nobody dared stop him. Nobody was going to stop him because he was on a mission. He was on a mission. And so don't miss the miracle here of Jesus' power in dealing with what happened. Notice it goes on to say, he scattered the coins. He literally poured out the, the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold the doves, the doves were for the poorest people. And the word sold means to barter or to be busy trading. In other words, even the poorest people had to get ripped off by those that were at the temple courts selling their sacrifices. Notice he says in verse 16, Remove these things away from here. Take them away. And stop making my father's house a marketplace. Several things. First of all, notice the words, my father's house. Jesus is saying a couple things here. First of all, he's saying this area that has been designated to the worship of God is really important. And it should be important to you because it's important to God. This isn't just a temple. This isn't just a place where God's people are to come together. This is my Father's house. And it should be taken seriously. And being part of God's household should be taken seriously. And what happens all around should be taken seriously. Not just, say, in the Holy of Holies, but everywhere, because it is to all be a reflection of who God is and a representation of who God is. Let me give you an example. I grew up in a very traditional church. Nothing wrong with that. But many people in that church, I can remember when I was a kid, you know, they wanted to make sure that, that the the children, we, because <clears throat> I was in there, behaved ourselves in the sanctuary. 
They didn't care how we behaved outside of the sanctuary. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, again, have respect and reverence for the place of worship. Absolutely. But what Jesus is saying, it's not just that place of worship. It's the whole precinct. It's what happens out in the parking lot. That's just as much a reflection and representation of God because it all surrounds people coming to worship God. And he also uses the phrase, my father's house, because he is, in a sense, making a very strong connection to the father, something a Jew would never presume to do. They never called the temple their father's house because, in a a sense, that's why they said to Jesus later on, you claim that you and the father are like this. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, yeah, we are. We're one. Me and the father And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if it's my Father's house, that also means it's my house. Something else. Some Christians have taken this passage to come to the conclusion that as Christians, we should never buy or sell anything within church grounds. I personally don't think that has anything to do with what's happening here. I don't think it's wrong to sell something in church. That's not what was happening here. They weren't selling something to help others. or They were taking advantage of the worship of God. They were exploiting people. They were monopolizing the situation. In fact, that's exactly what the word marketplace means. It's a word where we get our word monopoly or to monopolize from, you see. And Jesus is saying, stop taking advantage of people. That's not what my father's house is to be about. If anything, my father's house should be about helping people, not ripping them off. And the worship of my father was never about creating a situation where people had to go beyond what God required for sacrifice. And yet, to make an extra buck, that's exactly what happened. Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't go into this, but just to give you an idea, Jewish historians tell us that the religious leaders of Israel during Jesus' day pocketed hundreds of thousands of dollars into their own pockets over what was happening here. And that so upset Jesus. Because again, it was misrepresenting God to everyone, including the Gentiles. So notice... His disciples remembered, as this was going on, what was written. I want to stop there. Notice that his disciples that he called knew their Old Testament. These weren't just fishermen that were ignorant of God and ignorant of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Bible many times throughout the Gospels tells us that Jesus' disciples recalled Old Testament Scriptures when they saw something or heard something that Jesus said or did. Well, that means they had to know it to begin with. 
And it's a real encouragement and challenge for us to know the Scriptures. Because if we know the Scriptures, then we can start to put pieces of puzzles together too and go, oh, that Scripture fits that situation. That's exactly what His disciples were doing. They had recalled a verse of Scripture out of the Old Testament describing the passion of the Messiah for God's house. And here's what they said. They remembered when this happened what was written. Zeal for your house will devour me. The word zeal means passion. Literally, it means to be hot, either in embracing or defending God's house. Jesus has a passion for God's house. A passion, the Bible says, that literally devours or consumes Him. That's why He acted the way He did. By the way, the word consume or devour here in the Greek language also has the meaning of to be in pain. A passion that brings pain. We all know that. You ever loved something or been passionate about something and know that the flip side of that is it can cause you pain sometimes too when you're passionate about something. That's what what the Bible's describing Jesus' attitude towards the Father's house. He had such a passion for the Father's house that what he saw was causing pain because what was happening was misrepresenting God to people. And it hurt him. And it caused in him such a righteous indignation and anger that he had to do something about it. Passion will always bring change. It's exactly what happened here. I know there's a lot of people, especially in our day and age, who think that I personally am very out of touch and old-fashioned because I'm all about the local church and wanting to get people to buy in to being part of a local church and to being faithful to the local church and, you know, using their gifts and talents and abilities in the local church and that the local church should be a priority in Christians' lives. I know that that's not... what most people think or you hear today. But I will tell you this, till the day I die, I believe that that's part of exactly what Jesus was doing here. He was showing us that as God followers, we should have a passion for the house of God. Because, note, That in the Old Testament and through the Gospels until the New Testament age, it was my father's house. But in the New Testament age, when the church started, it was no longer than my father's house, but it was my church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now, rather than being a part of my father's house or gathering at my father's house or having a passion for my father's house, now it is that we should have a passion for the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. Even so much that it causes us pain. Verse 18. So then the Jewish leaders responded, 
what sign can you show us since you are doing these things? Basically, they wanted a miraculous defense of his authority. Who gave you, who are you? They don't know who he is. They, they might have recognized that he was from Nazareth because in Israel at that time, just like even today, when you were from a certain part of Israel, your garments and dress would look a certain way. It would sort of distinguish you of what part of Israel you were from. So they may have even, just by looking at the way Jesus was dressed, knew that he was from the north and that he was from around the area of Galilee and Nazareth. But beyond that, they had no clue as to who this guy was. And they're probably, after seeing him completely just wipe everybody out of the temple precincts and drive them out, they come back to him and go, who are you and what do you think you're doing and why do you think you have the authority to do? We're the religious leaders of Israel. Who are you? And notice Jesus really doesn't answer them. At least in a straightforward way. Because again, they're not really interested in if he does have the authority because they could care less if he did. It was all about them preserving their authority. By the way, let me also say this at this point. The two times in the Bible, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he drives people out of the temple. And at the end of his ministry, he, he starts his ministry at Passover in Jerusalem. He ends his three-year ministry at the Passover in Jerusalem. And these two times that he exhibits such stern firmness and force. I don't think Jesus injured anybody when he made that whip. I don't think he hurt physically anybody. I think it was the force of his moral authority. But I do want to note this. The two times that Jesus acts like this, instead of the compassionate person that a lot of times we see in the Gospels, is because of who he's dealing with primarily. You see. It's all in who he's dealing with. When he's dealing with a sinner, he's very understanding and compassionate. But the one thing that Jesus, God, cannot tolerate is religious hypocrisy. And that's why he was so angry. See, he... When he cleansed the temple, he declared war on the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. Which really ends with his teaching in Matthew 23, where he calls them whitewashed tombs and vipers and the blind leading the blind. When, when, when God was angry, his anger was always directed at religious hypocrisy. Not at sinners who just wanted help. He had great understanding and compassion. But he had no tolerance of those who tried to portray themselves as spiritual when they really weren't. That's why he acted the way he did here, which was so unlike the way he acted many other places in the Gospels. So notice, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And I love in the Greek language, here's what Jesus says to them. He says, go ahead and do this and see what happens. 
And notice, he's basically saying now, the word temple here, again, very interesting, he's not using the word for temple that was used before by John to describe the temple precinct, the court of the Gentiles. The word he's using to describe his body here is the word that's used just for the holy place and the holy of holies, which is where God dwells. And Jesus is basically saying, you want a sign of my authority? Wait till I rise from the dead. And notice, Jesus here is saying, you destroy the temple, this temple, I will raise it up again. You knock it down, you tear it down, I'll cause it to rise. Can I say, I hope that will be an encouragement to you in this way. Maybe you've been knocked down. Maybe you've been torn down by others. Jesus can raise you up again. I'm a living example of that. Sometimes we get knocked down in life. Sometimes we get torn down. Jesus Christ can raise us back up again. Listen to these words later on in the Gospel of John about Jesus being able to do this, speaking of his own death. He says, this is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it back again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. John, 7, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. That's what I just read there. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I have the authority to raise myself back up. Who else can do that but God? And so Jesus here is responding. You want a miraculous defense? I'll give it to you. When I rise from the dead, you'll know I had the authority. Then the Jewish leaders, obviously, who had no clue as to what Jesus was really saying, said to him, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you're going to raise it up in three days? They had no clue that he was talking about his body. They again thought he was talking about the temple. By the way, though, this verse is a very important verse for this reason. Some people might read this verse and go, well, that's just a throwaway verse. No, it's not. It's a very important verse because it sets when Jesus is in history. We know from this verse exactly what year Jesus was in Jerusalem during Passover. This would have been 30 A.D., 46 years after Herod's renovation of the temple. Because what they're talking about here is in Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, the first temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians. And it's not necessarily Zerubbabel's temple, because this was partly Zerubbabel's temple, but they're talking here, because Zerubbabel was long off the scene, Herod, to appease the Jews, began a construction project to refurbish and enhance the temple 46 years before 30 A.D. In fact, isn't it interesting that in less than 30 years, Titus is going to come through with the Roman army and destroy it all anyway, except the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, which we see today on television. Or if you go to Jerusalem, you can see the only part of this temple that is left to this day. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. By the way, again, so that we understand that the body of Christ 
is important. I wanted to just quickly read this verse today. Now the church, this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. The church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is Christ's body. That's why we are to have a passion for the church. That's why we should have zeal for the church. Because the church is Christ's body. We now represent Christ before the world. We are His representatives. We are His ambassadors. We are the ones to take the light and shine it in the world. And that's why we should very much care about the church and about being part of the church because it is His, Christ's body. So after He was raised from the dead, verse 22, His disciples remembered that He had said this. And they believed the Scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. They believed the Scripture, the written Word, the record that God had given and the saying that Jesus had spoken. Just a couple more verses and we wrap it up before we go into chapter 3 next week. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover, many people believed in His name because they saw the miraculous signs He was doing. And I think, folks, I think that this was genuine belief. But I will say this, as we're going to see in just a moment, It was new belief. It was baby belief. It was not rooted yet. It was not, it had not grown yet. It had not matured yet. It it was just very much on the surface. So that's why the Bible says in verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, not place confidence in them yet, because he knew thoroughly all people and he did not need anyone to testify about man for he knew what was in man and he even knew that many of these people who initially followed him was going to turn around one day and not follow him any longer so here's the deal jesus loves them and you and i can love people but that doesn't mean we have to trust them Because trust is something that's earned over time. That's exactly what Jesus loved these people. But He didn't trust them. He didn't place confidence in them yet because they had just come to believe. And again, their belief had not been grounded or rooted. They hadn't had a strong foundation yet. But what God does look for is belief that will grow and be rooted down deep so that He can entrust us with things which is what I want you to think about tonight. Can Jesus trust you with what He wants to give you? And know that always He wants to give us more, so He wants us to be faithful in what He gives us so that He can entrust us with more. 
How sad that Jesus wants to entrust people with things, but he can't give it to them because he can't really trust them yet. He can't put his confidence in them yet. See, that's why even the disciples, you'll note here in the early chapters of the Gospels, Jesus doesn't even ask his disciples yet, his followers, to do much yet. He just wants them to be with him because he needs to build some stuff into them so that they can handle what he's going to entrust them with. Later on, as they get their belief grounded a little bit, then he can give them a little bit more. And so that's again why it's so important that we grow and that we get rooted like a tree and, and get that grounding and that foundation and that maturity to us. Because the more we grow and the more grounded we are and the more mature we are, the more Jesus can entrust to us. Because our belief is not a superficial, flimsy, slim belief. It is a deep-rooted belief in which He can place confidence and entrust us with things. And so that's what we see here. Before we close, a couple things. Next week, we are going to dive into John chapter 3. And we are going to be in John chapter 3 for probably about four weeks. Here's what I want to, and I'm going to mention this on Sunday. I hope Christians will come these next four weeks, but, because I think there's going to be some things you're going to see that, that will, you know, Maybe you've never seen, even from John chapter 3, such a familiar passage of Scripture. But here's what I'm also asking and asking you to be praying about. If you ever were able to get an unsaved friend or family member to come with you to church or to Bible study, see if you can do it one of the next four weeks. In fact, one week, in a couple weeks, we're going to spend the entire night just on John 3.16. Just on that one unbelievable verse. And if you can't get them to come one of these next couple of weeks, at least maybe you can encourage them to listen to the podcast after it's over. Because John chapter 3 is such a great, most clear teaching of all the scriptures on the new birth and the necessity of the new birth. And what does it mean to be born again, born from above? We're going to talk about all that in the next couple of weeks. So I hope you'll come back and maybe be able to bring somebody with you. Also, before you leave tonight and we close again, just a reminder, in less than two weeks, I start this series on Elijah on Sunday mornings the first Sunday in November. If you could please take one of these cards, it's over there on the table, just to pray for this series, to pray over this series. This series is all about taking a stand. Taking a stand for or against something, but taking a stand. The Bible never wants us as God's followers to ever retreat, to ever run away, to ever turn our back. But the Bible always is encouraging us to take a stand. Is there something right now that we need to take a stand on or take a stand for in our life? This series will greatly encourage you in that respect. And would you take one maybe to pass to a friend to invite them to come with you?
to this series. I really believe that God laid this series on my heart because he's going to use it greatly in our lives as individuals and as a church. Take a stand, the life and times of Elijah the prophet. By the way, we will be making cards up that we will begin to pass out and make available to you all in the month of December for our series on Tuesday nights in the book of Revelation starting in January. So we will make sure that we have those available to you as well. I am so excited about that series. I have done uh, a study on the book of Revelation many times throughout my 29 years as a pastor, but I will tell you this, I have never done it the way I'm going to do it this time. So I'm really excited about it. It's going to be a different way to look at the book of Revelation. And I'm learning new things out of this I can't wait to share it with you starting in January. Let's close in prayer. God, we have seen tonight how zealous, how passionate Jesus was for his Father's house. Lord, to make sure that what happened in and around the place where God's people were to gather for worship, for prayer, for instruction, would be a proper representation of who you are and what you're all about. And we have seen tonight that the religious leaders of Israel, the ones who were entrusted to be leading people to a proper understanding of God, were doing just the opposite in Jesus' day. They were misrepresenting God before the people. And that made Jesus very angry. God, I pray that we would be as passionate about your body, the church, as we should be. That, God, we would see that it's a special place. And what happens in and around the church and in the name of the church, is very important to God. Very important. And that we should truly value the relationships that we have within your body because it's so important to you. So God, I pray tonight that you would take this great passage of Scripture and remind us of the truth contained within it. Remind us about who Jesus really is and what He's passionate about. So, Lord, that kind of passion can be building in our lives as well. And help us, Lord, to become people that Jesus can entrust us with things. That He can place confidence in us and give us assignments and appoint us to things. Because He knows, Lord, that we've been grounded, that we have a, a maturity to us unlike the people that he dealt with there in Jerusalem. God, go with us this week. Give us opportunities, Lord, to be a witness, to be a light, to invite people to come with us to church, to just rub up against them, and to be a positive influence in their life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.